0: Welcome to Brazilian Politics, the podcast where three political analysts talk about all things Brazilian politics. This week, we will discuss the general political environment, including updates on pension reform, Bolsonaro's governing coalition, and Brazil in the context of the U.S.-China trade war. Welcome to Brazilian Politics. I'm Michael Lopez and I'm joined by my colleagues Lucas and Thiago Aragão. Thank you for joining us once again.
1: Hello, listeners. Glad to be here. Hello, everyone.
0: All right. To get things started, we are coming up on a milestone for the Bolsonaro administration 100 days in office. So before we get into specific discussions on pension reform, the relationship with the legislative, and other issues, what can we say about Bolsonaro's first 100 days? And as a corollary, is the Bolsonaro government in early April the same as it was in January? And if not, what has changed?
1: Marco, I think uh, this is a government that has had a lot of obstacles and problems in the first three months, mainly created by the government itself. We haven't seen uh, a lot of external factors or the opposition Uh, creating difficulties for this government. I think the main uh, obstacle and objective of this government, uh, looking back at the first 100 days, is adapting to the reality of Brasília. This government has had an electoral victory, uh, which was centralized a lot in anti-establishment strategies. It won without the support of the center parties, Without money, without television, and now for it, it began its legislative agenda, thinking that with social media alone, it would be able to approve uh, its agenda. The thing is, Congress had another plan, pushed back, uh, made the government suffer some defeats, and now the government it all looks like it's starting to step back into reality a little bit um, uh, later than the expected.
2: Also, Michael, uh, this government is still trying to find an identity. Uh, during the campaign last year, the rhetorical was very clear. It was a rhetoric of uh, attacking uh, the PT, the Workers' Party, trying to rebrand as this right-wing liberal and economics uh, potential administration. And when the new year came, they're still struggling to find uh, fortify this view that they are, in fact, a right-wing liberal administration. So many people in the government claiming to be so uh, are not fully aware what it means to be a prospective right-wing, while many are still a retrospective right-wing. So what we see is a lot of narrative regarding history and and very little narrative regarding the, the depth of the programs that could come from now on. The only place that we see this happening with more strength and more sophistication is the Ministry of Finance, as the Ministry of Finance is creating um, several proposals, not only for the pension reform, but in several other areas as well that matches precisely the agenda of a liberal Uh, right-wing administration.
0: Thank you, Thiago. Thank you for mentioning pension reform. I think that's always one of the top concerns for our listeners. Um, And moving on to pension reform, Paulo Guedes will finally make it to the Lower Houses Constitution and Justice Committee this Wednesday to discuss the pension reform proposal after failing to attend the committee last week. Can we consider Paulo Gedges the main articulator of pension reform and especially the need for pension reform? And who are the other key players?
1: Gedges is definitely a key player given uh, the power that he has over the Ministry of Economy, a super ministry which uh, has now the Ministry of Trade, parts of the Ministry of Labor uh, and other former ministries as well. Another player is Rogério Marinho, the Secretary of Social Security, who is a former congressman. So he is a breath of fresh air in a very technical ministry of finance. We also have Rodrigo Maia, who is very engaged in approving the pension reform. As I said in a couple of um, last episodes, he sees this as an opportunity to become the poster boy of an economic recovery in Brazil, but also the government will have to find other leaderships along the way. Especially if it starts negotiating deeper with the Congress. Once once it negotiates with the Congress in a in a more uh, long term way, I think naturally we'll, we will see leaders from the center party more engaged uh, in this approval. I also would like uh, to mention. Uh, The chief of staff, Onyx Lorenzoni, who in this role as chief of staff, he has a very prominent uh, activity in the negotiation with Congress. He is a former congressman himself, and he's also a key player. And also Bolsonaro, who has a strong image and influence uh, among his former colleagues in the National Congress.
2: And I think Lucas touched a very important point, which is Bolsonaro and uh, Onyx Lorenzoni. I think that their engagement... Uh, for the success of the pension reform has to be immediate and has to be profound in the sense that the president, although he, he doesn't need to talk technically with the leaders of the parties, including the leaders of the allied parties, but what he needs to demonstrate is the same engagement as the Ministry of Finance is, is demonstrating. And by demonstrating engagement, he consequently demonstrates the sense of urgency which probably has been the number one problem with approving the pension reform in the past years there is not no not, not long sense of urgency in Brazil a not very deep sense of urgency and if we recall in the previous years this is probably the first big uh, bill or reform that is intended to be beneficial for the long term, for the future, beginning to benefit in the future and not immediately. So this is something new in a country that is very short-sighted and that most of the bills approved in the parliament over the past years have been bills that brought positive outcomes immediately. And this creates a sort of difficulty within the congressman in voting in favor of something that they probably won't benefit of the results of it.
0: Uh, thank you, thank you, Chago. Indeed, the the articulation, the political negotiation of the executive and the legislative, has been uh, the focus of a lot of criticism early on in this administration. And uh, last week, I think we we reached a crescendo in, in this tension. But it seems that this crisis between the legislative and the executive is showing signs of uh, resolution. You know, we had a few things happen. Maya met with gages. Bolsonaro said that the crisis was just a, a summer storm. Um, the lower house uh, sent a tough message to the executive with the compulsory spending um Constitutional amendment, and we can get into uh, into that in a little more detail in a little more detail uh, later on. But it is is the crisis really over? Is it that easy? And uh, what what lessons have been learned in this uh, early period of tension between the executive and the legislative?
1: Michael, I wouldn't say that the tension is over, but we do see some signs, and we will see some signs in the in the upcoming days. Uh, that will show if this tension is uh, actually diminishing. For instance, the House of Representatives and the Senate, they have an important week this week. Uh, Two examples. The House of Representatives will meet tomorrow, the leaders of the House, of the parties, will meet tomorrow to decide what is the agenda of the week It's very important to see what the leaders decide. If they decide to vote some bills that are fiscally damaging to the government, such as the Kandir law, uh, which uh, gives back to the municipalities uh, and to the states some compensations for the reduction in a tax, this could represent a 39, 40 billion reais of damage to the central government. If the House of Representatives puts this in the agenda, it's a signal that the tension is still there. Another example is the Senate, which will vote the the constitutional amendment of the compulsory spending, uh, which forces the government to devote 1% of liquid current revenue to collective parliamentary amendments. What does this mean? The Senate will vote. If they vote and approve, it shows that the tension is not uh, as over as we might have thought However, the government is trying to approve it, but with changes. What does this mean? That if they change the, cons- the constitutional amendments for compulsory spending, you would have to go back to the House of Representatives and go through all the process, such as constitutional and justice committee, a special committee, and then two rounds in the lower House floor. So these signals, it's important to see and to look uh, at what is not that much in the spotlight. I was taking a look right now at the agenda of... Paulo Gadges tomorrow. Guedes was not meeting a lot with congressmen. Tomorrow he will meet with the entire uh, group of depu- of congressmen from the PSD, a very important center party, and he will also meet with the congressmen from the PRB. So it's important to look at these signals to see if the tension is actually reducing and if the government is trying to improve this relationship. And I think it's getting better, uh, but it's always difficult to measure the the future, especially on such... Uh, an impulsive government such as Bolsonaro.
2: And to conclude this explanation uh, from Lucas, uh, I was talking with uh, some uh, members, some foreign investors uh, yesterday from New York, and we were talking precisely about the, the tension between the executive and the, legisla- the, the legislative. And one of them said something very interesting. They said that, the, of course, every tension between the executive and the legislative will always end, and will always end relatively soon. The problem is what triggers the tension. In certain administrations, it it takes more to trigger a tension between the two powers. Uh, In other administrations, it takes much less. So there are fear in relation to, to what could be the extra black swans that can delay not only the pension reform, but every other bill of interest for those who want to put investment in the country, is how small of an issue is enough to create a tension between the executive and the legislative. If the two sides, particularly the executive, throughout the next months don't raise the bar in order to have tensions only when the matter is worthy of tension, we can have further blockades down the road that can become a habit and keep on going not only this year but and next year, and affecting every other thing of interest of the government.
0: Thank you, Chago. That's very well put. Uh, going going back to what. Lucas was saying, um, we had the lower house approved this compulsory spending constitutional amendment uh, in record time. And I'd like to add that this is the same type of legislation as pension reform, which goes to show that Congress is able to approve constitutional amendments quickly, as long as they're engaged uh, in, in getting this thing approved. And I would also like to add in Lucas's list of bills and, and decrees to keep an eye on, There's also a possible Senate discussion on the bill that annuls the presidential decree that removed visa requirements for citizens of the U.S., Australia, Canada, and uh, Japan. And that that could also uh, be approved in the Senate, which leads me into my next question, which is we have specific pieces of legislation progressing in the lower house. We have other pieces of legislation in the Senate Both the lower house and the Senate are presided over by members of the Dane party of the Democrats. And I'd just like to hear a little from you on the differences between the relationships uh, with the executive and the lower house and the executive and the Senate. Is it the same type of relationship? Uh, What are the key differences?
1: Michael Dane has a very strategic role in this government, and when I say stru- strategic, is in their own interest. The day uh, had a very important role on the Michelle Temer administration. Rodrigo Maia was president of the House during Temer's administration. He was responsible for helping uh, Temer approve the labor reform changes in in, in outsourcing uh, changes in other. regulatory aspects, he tried to reduce the barriers for the entrance of airlines, foreign airlines in Brazil, Uh, and obviously he helped Temer not get ousted by the Congress when he was uh, involved in the JBS scandal. That gave Maia a lot of power over the Centrão and gave Maia a lot of power over the executive branch, even with political nominations, which he doesn't want to lose right now. So Dane has an interest in keeping uh, things under control and the Congress motivated because they have a lot of influence still uh, from the Temer administration into that. Uh, Another point is that the House is a much more more problematic um, uh, place because they have 513 congressmen, over 25 parties, and the negotiation is sometimes very individual while in the Senate is a more institutional uh, role. Especially in the Constitution and Justice uh, Committee in the House, which is a first discussion uh, it 's extremely important to start things well, so the day has uh, a lot of power in getting the ball rolling. So I think that these are the main differences on the House or in the Senate. The House is a much more individualized conversation when things are not going very well, and in the Senate is a much more institutional conversation and Just to finalize another aspect. Uh, is that the the social security reform starts in the House, so it arrives in the Senate with a lot of motivation uh, to keep the ball rolling. So the House has, in my opinion, at this moment, uh, a much more more important and much more difficult arena to negotiate uh, the pension reform. And the the the
2: importance of the House of Representatives uh, is is evident not only in, in what Lucas said, but in. Also, in, in how diluted it is in terms of the support and the, their changing opinions in relation to topics. For example, um, our company Arco Advice uh, led a poll this week with 109 congressmen, uh, federal, uh, representatives from 25 different political parties, and o- over 60%, percent, uh, precisely 60.55%, of the representatives in the lower house, they currently um, classify or mention that the relationship between the executive and the legislative is bad or uh, terrible, and this is an astonishing number compared to February, where this number was only seventeen percent. So there are two messages from there. One is that the the volatility of their perception of the executive. Changes very fast is is very dynamic, and second that it's very easy for you to get the the House of Representatives angry with the executive in a way that the Senate uh, is something more institutional, as Lucas placed, and harder for you to have this sort of volatility uh, in such a short time of uh, such a short period of time.
1: And and just finalize uh, the House of Representatives is uh, a, a house. Where you have a lot of newcomers with political ambitions, trying to show their electorate uh, signals that they are important to the constituents, uh, so they require and they leverage a lot the executive branch to get their benefits. So the level of pork barreling and horse trading sometimes is much higher in the Senate. You have much more established politicians with political capital of their own. They have, we have today in the Senate, former governors. We have a former president. We have um, former mayors, former congressmen, so a a lot of political capital that can be used individually. While in the House, you have newcomers fighting for a place uh, of spotlight among their their constituents.
0: Thank you, Lucas. And and one of these newcomers, uh, Federal Representative Kim Katagiri, used an interesting analogy uh, earlier today about pension reform saying that the Bolsonaro administration, is, and specifically pension reform, is like a championship that begins with the final. And the pension reform is the final game, and it's the first game of the championship. Um, So as far as pension reform is concerned, so we can wrap this up for our listeners, um, uh, leaders of political parties in the lower house took a stand last week about specific aspects of the pension reform proposal, uh, they specifically positioned themselves against the BPC, uh, Beneficio de Prestação Continuada, and uh, rural retirement elements in the proposal. Um, how do you guys see this positioning from the party leaders? Is it, uh, does it translate to support for the other elements of the proposal? And is this good news for the progress of the bill in the committee in the lower house?
1: Michael, the BPC and the rural benefits, I think, are among the points, even in the Ministry of Economy, that they were expecting some dilution and even some removal. They, they impact uh, fiscally little. It's not that uh, important in terms of fiscal um, uh, opportunity of the pension reform contributing to Brazil. And also they are uh, impacting lower levels of the social pyramid. So it's a tougher battle to convince the congressmen. So I think BPC and the rural benefits are, are definitely among the points that the government was expecting. But I do think uh, other things might change as well, especially the military um, pension reform, which was not well received among congressmen, especially the part of restructuring of their careers. I am sure that this point will be changed and 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 strengthened by the congressman. Or, in a second scenario, they would leave the the pension reform uh, in a a limbo until the government gives signs that they want to negotiate these specific parts of the military pension reform.
0: Thank you, Lucas. And moving on from the pension reform discussion, which is always a complex uh, discussion, um, April 7th will mark uh, one year of Lula's imprisonment And uh, on April 10th, the federal Supreme Court in Brazil is set to decide uh, a case on arrests following convictions by a higher court, a conviction in a second instance. And the last time the federal Supreme Court looked at this, they decided by six votes to five in favor of arrests after a conviction in the second instance. Will this decision repeat itself? Uh, should we expect a change in the understanding of the federal c- Supreme Court? And what will be the political consequences of this decision,
2: Michael? Um, the the result of six five that we've seen in the past year indicates that it was a um, a tough decision for some, and it showed how the Supreme Court was divided in this matter. Uh, it is normal for the Supreme Court to to Still be divided for um, ministers of the Supreme Court to change their minds to reevaluate especially especially because the complexity of our of our penal code and our constitution uh, is such that it creates several overlaps, allowing for different types of interpretation depending on the narrative and the rhetoric made on top of that uh, right now, what we see is that uh, Minister Rosa Weber she is the one that is demonstrating the largest um that no one, the, the biggest question mark within the court and her decision will again be critical to define a 6-5 to one side or to another i would say that there are chances of changing and politically this will certainly create if the decision is in favor of former president lula it will definitely create uh, a wave of criticisms from the administration, uh, from society, uh, from segments of the society, from segments of the legislative, creating another hot topic that will probably put behind, at least for one or two weeks, other issues of uh, larger importance.
1: Yeah, I agree with Chago. The main question today, if it's, if it's Supreme Court Justice Rosa Weber, uh, will change her mind. We've had in the past some ministers... Change their mind. I think it's still a, a a very difficult scenario to predict. I do believe there are some real chances of uh, revoking of the of prison in in the second level, uh, which would benefit Lula. Obviously, today uh, it's important to mention that the Brazilian Bar Association OAB asked the Supreme Court to postpone the decision. Uh, currently, the process is scheduled to happen. Uh, On April 10th. And this is is bringing a lot of attention. Sergio Moro has requested the Supreme Court not to change this understanding, but it's still very hard to predict.
0: Thank you. And for the final segment of the podcast, we'd like to move on to foreign policy and foreign trade. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Thiago specifically to discuss uh, uh, this issue uh, that I'm going to ask you about in the wake of your excellent article on the matter. Um, I'd like you to speak about uh, the U.S.-China trade war and how Brazil stands um, in in the context of this uh, international trade war.
2: Well, Michael, this matter is, is extremely complicated, as everyone imagines, everyone knows. Last week, uh, Robert Lighthizer, he was in Beijing. Uh, doing the U.S. part of the negotiation, the extra round of negotiations. And this week, we're going to have the Chinese negotiator Liu He uh, arriving in Washington, D.C. to continue the conversations. Well, there are basically three points that are of key, uh, key questions to be negotiated in the, in, in, within the two parts. The first point is what, the, what China would buy in terms of products, from the U.S. in order to create an equilibrium within the, the commercial balance. Uh, apparently, within what already came up, this would come from uh, the agricultural part of, uh, of the trade. Currently, the uh, China buys approximately 20 billion reais in products uh, from 20 billion dollars. I'm sorry, in products from the U.S. And part of the expectation is to more than double that, bringing to $50 billion. If this happens, naturally, China cannot uh, accommodate that amount of of food, of soy, of beef, of poultry, of other uh, issues, which would probably lead them to buy less from a different country. And this different country likely could be Brazil. So this. The, the increase in acquisitions from China within the U.S. is likely to harm Brazil uh, sufficiently in terms of our exports to China. Second, there is the question of uh, intellectual property and patents, which is something, and, and also cybersecurity, which are of great importance for the U.S., while the Chinese are playing aloof. And the reason that the Chinese are are opening up the possibility of more than doubling their imports from the U.S. is to try to make a compensation for not touching these topics. And by not touching these topics, their key interest is because uh, this deals with national security on both sides. The U.S. knows that China uh, has an edge in terms of their technological advances for the fact that they do not follow the same rules in terms of uh, intellectual property, while the Chinese they know that they also ha- are developing an edge in terms of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity and quantum computer, etc, precisely because they don't incorporate intellectual property within their agenda and third is the biggest question also of how those things can be monitored, uh, which is more of a US question than a Chinese. In order to wrap it up. Right now, we are in a moment that for the two sides to take it slow uh, can be a good idea. And the reason for that is that the U.S., uh, Trump just got a major victory domestically with the report from Mueller, and he might want to keep a major deal with China for closer to the electoral electoral period, while in China, the more they wait, the more they can protect their issues related to intellectual property.
0: Thiago, thank you so much for your contribution. I would also like to thank uh, Lucas Jaragão for his contributions, but especially thank you to our listeners. That will do it for this episode of Brazilian Politics. Please tune in next week for more discussions on Brazilian politics. Thank you.